It's Tuesday, June 19th, and this is The Daily Dive. Administration officials continue to defend the practice of taking children away from their parents after crossing the border illegally. Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen said the administration is only following the law and will not apologize, adding that the children are being taken care of properly. She also called on Congress to act and change the situation. Daniel Lippman from Politico will join us for more on this. Federal prosecutors last week charged Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes with 11 counts of criminally defrauding investors, patients, and doctors. Holmes conned many into believing she could change the healthcare industry by offering faster, cheaper, and painless blood tests. Dan Primack, business editor for Axios, joins us for a discussion on how the lessons learned from Theranos changed biotech investing and increased skepticism of new technologies. Finally, the World Health Organization has said that compulsively playing video games now qualifies as a mental health condition called gaming disorder. Mike Snyder, technology writer for USA Today, fills us in on why some psychiatrists don't agree with this new classification. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have some of the highest attention standards in the country. Claiming these children and their parents are treated inhumanely is not true and completely disrespects the hardworking men and women at the Office of Refugee Resettlement. Joining us now is Daniel Littman, co-author of the Politico Playbook. So I wanted to keep talking about uh, the big issue that happened over the weekend and continue still children being separated from their families when they come to the border and they get put into uh, the detention centers. The president remained very defiant. The A lot of the cabinet members also on the same page, one of the first times that everyone is kind of on the same page with this. But what did the president say? He said he doesn't want the U.S. to turn into a migrant and refugee camp and doesn't want the U.S. to become a, a facility for storing every person who comes from a war-torn country. He he comes from the America First policy, uh, you know, vision. He doesn't want to have to deal with this problem. And, and he was elected based on a, his strong enforcement of immigration. But I think most people who voted for him, they didn't expect that he would separate kids from their parents. This is seen as a bridge too far by many Republicans, even Speaker Paul Ryan, Melania Trump, Laura Bush. They all are speaking out uh, opposing this policy. And so maybe the cabinet is sticking with Trump because he's their boss. But everyone else around him and you know, near him, they, they just don't like this uh, one bit. Right. And the visuals are pretty tough to see from the detention centers. Kids laying on mats with those foil blankets. They're behind chain link fences. It looks like a prison in there. I and mean, that's kind of what they are. They're, de- they're detention centers. The president keeps referring to, let's change the laws. The Democrats are being obstructionist. What law specifically is he referring to that allows them to separate the families? There's a 2008 law that provided the option of this, but did not require the government to separate kids from their parents at the border. And so that's a very clear distinction. He's in Trump could just call up the Department of Homeland Security and in one minute say, you should not enforce this section of the law to that extent. And so even President Obama, he enforced part of this law. But once they were able to understand the ramifications of what this meant, they backed down. Right now you have 2,000 plus kids being cooped up, separated from their parents. And something uh, listeners may not know, but they probably can guess, if, you know, if they're smart enough, is that there's a lot of psychological damage that comes from being separated. The president and other peoples in the administration have said this is not a bargaining chip, but it's really hard to 
see that it's not. I mean, Jeff Sessions himself said that if lawmakers would just give into President Trump's demands, including the the border wall and pass some new bills that they're trying to get through right now, you know, this issue would no longer exist. So it's it's tough to not say that this is a bargaining chip. Stephen Miller, he said to the New York Times that he was very candid about his, his views. They see it as a nuclear option that they pressed in April when they announced this no tolerance policy. Jeff Sessions is almost seeming to be like a Trump's favorite cabinet member these days with this policy, even though you know, he has his own disputes about the recusal from the Mueller probe. And it shows in the polls that a lot of Americans don't believe him. 66% of Americans oppose this policy. They don't want this to happen. A much smaller percentage are in favor of this, uh, kind of the hardcore immigration restrictions. But there's always been a wing of American politics that is skeptical of foreigners, and particularly people from Central America. You know, they're seen as taking Americans' jobs, even though economists will tell you that the more people working in the U.S., the better for the American economy. NBC News had said that the Department of Health and Human Services has over 11,000 minors in its care right now. And the Homeland Security Secretary, Kristen Nielsen, had a press conference yesterday where she was offering a full-throated defense of the practice and also defending the administration, saying you know that these kids are not being mistreated to that number specifically of these minors in their care. She said that over 10,000 of them are kids that have been sent alone by their parents. We saw that a couple years ago with the rush of migrant children coming. So you know, they're maintaining that a lot of these kids still are being very well taken care of, but they're alone. That's why they're still being held. She also said that asylum seekers are not being separated from their families, and it, it is a criminal act to enter the country illegally. And until something happens, until laws are changed, they're going to follow the law. They're going to keep separating the families. Like I said, it seems hard to believe that this is not a bargaining chip. What are lawmakers saying and what are they trying to do to change this? When they're back in town, they're going to try to see hearings. Lots of senators have sent letters to Kirsten Nielsen about this policy. They want this to stop. And so there's Democratic bill to prevent this and prohibit this from happening either in the past or the future. But it's going to take a long time to you reunite every family immediately because people are sent to different facilities for trials. And you have these and asylum seekers. There are credible reports that the Trump administration is not following the, the policy on that and that they are taking kids away from people who are trying to file for asylum. And they're not, you know, when you go all the way to the U.S., you don't expect that to happen. You, you just want to see if your asylum claim is uh, with merit or without merit and then uh, and have it get decided by a, a neutral arbiter. Do we know anything more about the immigration bill coming up before the House uh, supposedly later this week? They're still trying to hash out the, the details of that. They're trying to get as many bipartisan supporters on that. You don't want to see a bill that's just a Republican bill or just a Democratic bill, because there is a lot of common ground on some of these pieces that you could get a large swath of the Senate of the House to support. And so it's going to look like trying to incorporate the best ideas from both parties, not to sound too sappy, but Democrats, they want to stop this from happening because you know of their long-held views. And Republicans, they view this as both bad policy and really bad politics because not going to help in the midterm election. Daniel Lippman, co-author of the Politico Playbook, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a fraud that not only defrauded investors of nearly a billion dollars, but that also put patients in harm's way. Joining us now is Dan Primack, business editor for Axios. 
Friday, federal prosecutors charged Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes and the former president, Sonny Balwani, with 11 counts of criminally defrauding investors, patients, and doctors. It is an incredible story. Let's start real quick. How did Silicon Valley get played by Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes? Theranos is a company started almost a decade ago at this point by Elizabeth Holmes, and, and it was a blood testing company. What they wanted to do was rather than go and have you know, these big blood draws to, you know, for every test you need, every medical test you need, they believed, or Elizabeth believed, that she could get a, basically a drop of blood or a couple drops of blood just out of a finger prick, and that could run dozens or even hundreds of tests on that single drop. And the potential for that, if you could do it, was massive right? You would have much lower costs. You would have a lot less pain for individuals. And she went and she raised a lot of money, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars from a lot of big name people, not so much Silicon Valley investors, but folks like the Waltons who are known uh, for creating Walmart and individuals like Henry Kissinger and George Shultz, the former secretary of state. And she created a large company. It had hundreds and hundreds of employees at one point and was valued at $9 billion. It was a con, and it's unclear whether it was always intended to be a con or whether simply she couldn't make the technology work and so right. started trying to lie her way out of it. The technology simply didn't work, and there were lies along, a lot of lies along the way. In fact, there's a new book about this called Bad Blood by the Wall Street Journal reporter John Carreyou, who really blew the whistle first on Theranos, and it's a great read. And, and what you realize from it is that if you were an employee at the company, certain information was siloed, or, or you weren't able to get certain information, and, and so you didn't really realize that there was something wrong going on on the other side. When regulators would come to examine the lab, everything looked fine, but what the regulators didn't know was that the real lab was behind a door that they hadn't even seen. When it came to investors, they were given literally false numbers, fake information about sales. So there was fraud all over the place. And ultimately, like most houses of cards, it finally fell down. Yeah, you said this changed biotech investing. It has. You know, one of the big criticisms of those who invested in Theranos, those who signed partnerships, I remember Walgreens had a huge partnership, Safeway had a huge partnership with Theranos, was the company never had any peer-reviewed science. Usually, particularly if you're talking about a major biotech breakthrough, which this was, and one that a lot of folks who are in blood science didn't believe was possible, you would normally have to start proving this thing out uh, with peer-reviewed science. Maybe not the day you form when you're raising your first round of outside capital, but certainly by the time you're a $9 billion company. And they never did that. And one of the things that's really changed is venture capitalists, particularly in private equity investors who are in biotech, the Theranos example has really reminded them and made sure that they are getting peer-reviewed science for the deals they're doing, particularly when they get to higher prices and the companies are a bit more mature. I mean, that's one of my favorite parts of this story. They asked Holmes and they asked the company, how do your Edison machines work? And it was a completely vague answer. A chemistry is performed so that a chemical reaction occurs and <laughs> generates a signal from the chemical interaction with the sample. That's how vague the answer was. Elizabeth Holmes really fancied herself to be the next Steve Jobs. She even walked around in, uh, in, in black turtlenecks after reading Walter Isaacson's biography of him. And I think she viewed it the same as an iPhone, right? If you had said to Steve Jobs or somebody at Apple, well, how does the iPhone work? You know, you probably would have gotten a very vague answer. But the reality was it didn't really matter because so long as you could turn the iPhone on and it turned on and you could make a call or get on the internet, how it really works was largely considered irrelevant. For her, though, it was a bigger deal. You're talking about people's health here. When people would get results from these devices, that could affect what drugs their physician would prescribe them or not prescribe them. Right. There's lives at stake. And it increases the skepticism of technology and the outlandish you know, ideas that people could have and, and re what really could get done at that point. It did. I wrote that this was kind of, I think, the first major chink in the armor 
of Silicon Valley when it came to invention, right? You know, there's always this whiz-bang, this wow factor about stuff that comes out of Silicon Valley. When you think about a smartphone, any smartphone you have, that's a supercomputer. Would have taken, you know, warehouses full of computers to be able to have that kind of processing power just 20 years ago. And, And so there's always this belief that so long as someone says they're building something that can do this new incredible thing, that that's probably real, particularly if you come up with a device and you physically have a box that has pretty lettering on it. But this was one was a con, and I think it was the beginning of people having more skepticism. You know, there's a lot of talk in Silicon Valley about vaporware, when a company presents something that doesn't really work yet, uh, but they don't tell you it doesn't work yet. And in Elizabeth's home, Theranos as an entire company was vaporware. She was on a ton of magazine covers, people throwing money at it, and there's going to be a movie made about this now. Who shares in all the blame? There is a lot of blame. The media fell down. Investors certainly fell down. The board, among whose directors, by the way, was Jim Mattis, who's currently the Secretary of Defense for the United States, who refuses to comment on any of this. Bill Frist, who used to be the Senate Majority Leader, was on the board. Henry Kissinger, none of whom will answer any questions about this, even though they were on the board theoretically providing oversight here. Everybody fell down on the job. All of that said, to me, it ultimately comes down to Holmes and Sonny Balwani, who was the former president. They were also in a relationship at the time, uh, no longer. To me, a good con artist is a good con artist because they're able to trick a lot of people. And, and they tell people what those people want to hear. They, they figure out what somebody will be receptive to. And if they have to, they will literally change numbers. They, you know, there are stories of them providing tests for potential partners or doing demonstrations, rather. They literally faked it. They created a pre-roll video so you would get your blood test result, and it would be within the normal range, but it wasn't really yours. It was someone else's, but you had no way to know that. They were good con artists, and, and to me, ultimately, the blame lies on them and shows that if somebody really wants to deceive, they're probably going to be successful, at least for a period of time. Dan Primack, business editor at Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. The American Academy of Pediatrics says if your kid is five, two to five, it should be an hour or less a day. With teenagers, it's really about the context. How does the video game affect their activities? Joining us now is Mike Snyder, technology writer for USA Today. The World Health Organization just came out with an announcement. They are classifying video game addiction as a mental health condition now, and they're calling it gaming disorder. What did they say when they released the news? Well, they've been looking at this issue for a couple of years, and they've taken all kinds of comments and things. And I guess they came to the conclusion that enough people could suffer from an addiction where they play too many video games that they felt it was time to put it on their books that this could be considered a certain disorder. Not, a, not part of many other disorders. Yeah, they're putting it into their international classification of diseases. But what is the definition of gaming disorder? Is it playing too many video games? Is there Are we putting a number on it? You know, they have some very vague uh, descriptions of how you would diagnose this. But in general, it is gaming to the extent that it affects the rest of your life. And the time limit they put on this is it had to have been happened for about 12 months. So that's a pretty wide parameter, but it obviously sets up a time situation where it's not, oh, you've been playing too many video games this weekend or anything like that. It's a weird classification, but there's mental health professionals that are not agreeing with this. For sure. I mean, we talked to the American Psychiatric Association today. They have been looking at this issue, too. In fact, four years ago, when they put out their DSM, which they have their diagnoses in, they added it to the appendix of the the document just to kind of 
spur on some research into the study, but they basically said we don't consider there's enough information to call this a disorder at this point. And psychologists, while the association itself, the American Psychological Association, did not come out and say anything specifically, um, earlier this year, a division of that group also came to the same conclusion. And then psychologists we talked to had differing points of view about this. But the fact is, while there may be people playing too many video games, there's really no way to say they're all suffering from the same certain disorder at this point. There's some statistics that say about 60% of Americans play video games daily, and they're not always just kids. Your average gamer is 34 years old, and 72% of gamers are age 18 or older. And as you were saying, some of these studies that you were pointing to, uh, the American Journal of Psychiatry said there might be from a 0.3% to a 1% of the general population that could qualify for this gaming disorder. So it's not really that many people that could be classified this way? Certainly. While there is a small percentage I went back today and did some research for the story I did, and there are several reports of deaths, individual deaths of people playing games for, you know, 24 hours or days at a time. But we don't really know what caused them to do that. The ways some certain games are created, you often are rewarded by spending a lot of time earning points to boost up a character or to get additional armor, for instance, or to get prizes and awards that you could actually sell. So some people have made a living playing right. games and, and selling things like that. So I can see why there's such a wide response to this move by the WHO. Part of it is to raise awareness of this. It encourages psychiatrists and therapists to examine what kinds of treatments you can do, increases chances that insurance companies could cover the costs of these treatments. But you also have to take a look at why is somebody retreating so much into video games? A lot of times people will say the main answer would be depression and anxiety. Yes, certainly. Um, in fact, that came up almost universally with the people we talked to today. One person put it this way, if I have a rough day at work, how do I unwind? I might go to the gym, you know, I might cook hamburgers outside, I might have a beer, I might play cards, or I might play a video game. Now, that's just a daily occurrence that happens all around the world. Now, if you deal with someone who is clinically depressed or anxious, you already have some diagnoses there that come into play. Where does gaming affect that? And there is some concern, actually, that gaming may be a coping mechanism for people who are suffering from other diagnoses. And if you try to take them off that, you actually make the patient worse. That's how you self-medicate. That's how you're, what you use for your escape to, like you said, address the other issues, the other concerns that you have. You know, and another weakness of this situation is that the WHO doesn't really have a treatment. You can point to if you decide you want to try to diagnose someone. The other things that have been brought up is video games could be very different. And some games are very social and some games are very solitary. And if you really were going to try to put together a diagnosis, there might actually be subsets of diagnoses for different games. Yeah, it's very interesting, and it's going to lead into a whole host of other issues. You know, there's the rise of esports, and there's even high schools and colleges that are forming esports teams to play video games. So it, there's going to be a clash of all this stuff, I, I can only assume, of people over gaming and then people trying to be part of these competitive gaming clubs. Mike Snyder, technology writer for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Certainly. Thanks for having me.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. We love the feedback, so don't forget to leave us a comment, give us a rating. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.